Thanks for downloading show 98 of the C-Suite podcast, the second in our special series of episodes that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. I didn't know this. We were, I was doing this under false pretenses and that, that we were promoting Taito PR. Ah, <laughs> right. Whoever Taito PR is. <laughs> Well, you, you, um, you conned me into this. Conned yet again. Conned again. Now, I was hoping you were going to behave yourself after. That's also under false pretenses. <laughs> I got well, I guess, I guess we're sponsoring this. We kind of like want to... Are you all the sponsor? How, much, the sponsor. how much are you paying for this? Not enough. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Believe me, not enough. Um, so once again, he's managed to interrupt me on, on my intro, as he did um, back in Cannes uh, uh, last year. So um, I should introduce the fact that I'm uh, at the offices of S4 Capital, and we're here to uh, chat to the group's chairman. Just when we chairman. start the podcast, the drill start. I know. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. We'll work our magic. And Sound we'll, engineer is fine. We'll, we'll get rid of that. So, um, so, the, so the person who you can hear interrupting me once again is Sir Martin Sorrell, uh, the uh, the group's uh, chair. And I'm uh, sat with um, Taito's... It's not a group, by the way. It's a company. A company. I do apologise. The company's chair. Um, and uh, I'm sat with uh, Taito's founder, uh, Brendan Craigie, who I am hosting these uh, unicorn interviews uh, together with. Now, um, quick introduction. S4 Capital PLC, if you don't know, is a media company focused on building a modern digital advertising and marketing platform for global-minded clients and in 2018 merged with MediaMonks, its content practice and Mighty Hive, its programmatic practice and went on to add um, seven, is that correct? No, no, it's actually up to nine. Nine for the content programmatic and data companies uh, to both six, practices. Six content and three uh, data and analytics and programmatic. Fantastic. Uh, now, um, as I mentioned just before, uh, I um, met and spoke to Sir Martin out in Cannes Lions back in June last year. You lived, lived to tell the tale. It was, no, we so enjoyed it. I, so. We enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. Uh, now, in November, so since that time and in November, um, he announced that his group has reached US dollar unicorn status with a market cap of over $1.2 billion. Um, 1.3 as of today. 1.3? Yes. We yes. are getting news as it, as it, as one, it comes over in. Over 1 billion pounds. So we're now, we're now a sterling unicorn. Right. But, well, uh, but, and very verifiable fact because there's a market... There's a market that establishes a value. Right. So on that note, yes. first question then. I gave you a good lead in there. Yeah, yeah. because because mo most, I mean, I mean, obviously when we set up this this uh, series that, that myself and Brendan are doing, most descriptions of unicorns state that they're privately owned businesses rather than publicly. Mm -hmm. um, obviously there are, um, you know, some definitions that just say it's, you know, a, a company worth $1 billion or pounds, but... Does that definition matter to you? Because you, you were quite well, yeah, it was clear just, in, it was in a making nice, that point. It was a nice sort of hook to hang on, um, uh, you know, the, the progress that we made in... We, we came back... To, well, we came to the market when we injected S4 Capital into what was a shell company called Derriston, which is a standard listing on the London Stock Exchange. I think it was on September the 17th of 2018. So we've been going at this for about uh, 18 months and about 15 months, uh, you know, we after 15 months, we got to dollar unicorn status. So that was a nice thing to say. I mean, whether it has any, um, it has veracity because there's a market value, whereas a lot of the, the claimed unicorn valuations, as you said, private valuations, and they're pretty meaningless. They're extrapolations of minority funding. You know, you, you if you get somebody to invest at a fancy valuation and buy 2% of the company, you then extrapolate that by 50 times to, to get the market cap. And I think that's sometimes a bit misleading. 
Um, you know, we're running at the rate of about, uh, if you pro forma, all the things we've done at about $400 million of revenue and about $100 million of EBITDA before holding company costs uh, or company costs. And, um, you know, I think it, it gives us a, 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 a peg to hang on. It was a target. It was a sort of a, a validation of the first year that we'd been going. And, you know, most of people didn't think that we would get to this sort of scale uh, this quickly. We're in 30 countries. We have 2,350 people. I was in Amsterdam earlier this week. Uh, you know, I used to think of Amsterdam actually being about 500 people of the 2,350, but we're, we're growing at such a rate there. You know, our organic growth rate is 45%. I'm not talking about deals. I'm talking about organic growth, so like-for-like -like growth. And, you know, Amsterdam will be up to about six or 700 in very short order. We have a new building that we're moving into in Hilversum, which is a suburb of Amsterdam, and a new building that we just moved in, into in, in Amsterdam. So we'll have two buildings and we'll have consolidated uh, four or five businesses in Amsterdam into those two buildings. So it's quite exciting what's happening there. And the, the, uh, the vibes and the uh, mood music is very strong. Uh, and we have a lot of opportunity there. And similarly, in Silicon Valley, we have a, a similar concentration of about 500 people. So we've got 1,000 out of the 2,350 in two centres, Amsterdam, which is good for Brexit, and uh, a good capital. I think it's one, one of the capitals of Europe, probably the capital that's gaining most from Brexit. And then uh, we have Silicon Valley, which, you know, from, from our point of view, given the fact we're just a solely a digital company. You described us as a media company. We're basically a, a pure digital play. Uh, given the fact that that's where our focus is, obviously Silicon Valley is critical. Has that met with your expectations when you what? set it up? The, the, the growth where you've got well, to... You know, it, it's, it's like people said it when I was at Sarge's or at WPP, you know, what, what's the growth ambition? And it would be it would be arrogant to sort of say that you have an ambition. And I, I think a lot of this is is, it's not luck. Uh, you make your own luck. My dad used to say you make your own luck um, through what you do. But, you know, we, we've, we've, uh, we didn't have a specific target. We didn't say we want to get to, to X in terms of revenue or EBITDA by um, the end of December uh, 19 or that we didn't say we want to get to unicorn say, say status. But, you know, I think we're, we're pleasantly surprised by the progress that we've made. And I think... Coming back to your original question, the the suggestion of unicorn status, whether it me is meaningful or not, it means something to people mm -hmm. people's minds. I mean, the, the the interesting thing is, you know, US has the largest number of unicorns, followed by the UK, followed by Israel, and would you believe Amsterdam is number four? It was a GP, I think it was GP Bull, Bullhound or Jeggy Clarity, one of the two. I think it was GP Bullhound actually, who who does this annual analysis, and it was quite interesting that Amsterdam has this so you've got so we've got if two of the top four we have large concentrations silicon valley and uh, amsterdam so for us in, as a purely digital business that we, we're really it's it's really a, a good structure actually excellent structure can i ask you a question Sir martin about the point you said about saying um with amsterdam being good for brexit yeah is that like a like a perception thing, or is that a, a very real no, issue? That's, re that's reality. I mean, yeah. I, I was there, we had a dinner with uh, some of the uh, Media Monks people, the Mighty High people, actually, mm. in uh, in Amsterdam, and they were saying how, it's, good, it's a good indicator of what's happening, how cost of housing, 
expenses and there's a bit of inflation there. And the reason is that a lot of companies, you know, people talk about Paris, they talk about Berlin, they talk about Frankfurt, they talk about Milan, they talk about Madrid. Uh, but I think actually the city that's probably, it's very cosmopolitan, it's well located physically, geographically, it has a good airport, mm. uh, Schiphol, which, you know, is a big airport, yeah. it's a good hub. Uh, no, what I was getting at was that it's benefiting because I think a, a significant number of companies are now starting to, to locate their international or European Airports, operations there. Right, okay. And if they took, if uh, the Prime Minister, Rutter, uh, who's an ex-Unilever guy, actually, mm. uh, took off the cap on banking salaries or, or bonuses or whatever it is, uh, and was probably a bit more aggressive, they would they would grow even faster. Now, there's a big question about the environmental impact of that and the ESG impact of it because it's a it's a small country. I think Amsterdam's population is about nine hundred thousand, so it's not a, a city, a big city. Yeah. Um, so I think people are a little bit worried about, and this is a big issue, uh, that if they take the caps off uh, on compensation or whatever it is in the banking industry, or the levies off, that that's going to cause environmental decay yeah. yeah yeah so i mean you know it's a it's a it's a small country holland's not a big country but you know it has a you know unilever is in rotterdam i mean you've got uh, booking.com there i mean it's a really interesting mm. companies i just want to go back to heineken there i mean it's it's an interesting capital just want to go back to the, the the group structure you started talking about how many acquisitions you've made and no, how we many don't people make acquisition we make mergers we're looking for people so a really say. important point we're looking for people who want to buy into what we're doing, who right. philosophically are aligned, that are not looking for to sell out, okay. but are looking to buy in. So the first com- the first sentence of every conversation is, if you want to sell, don't come to us. Yeah. If you want to sell, go to Dentsu or WPP or right. Omnicom or whatever it to be. If you want to buy into an approach where we're trying to build, we may be successful and may not be successful, a new age, new era company, you know, this is for you. And that's really everything we've done, and we've done 11 things, including Media Monks and Mighty Hive, in the last year and a bit. Uh, everything we've done has been premised on that basis, with one exception, Caramel Pictures, which was an assets purchase. It was a robotic studio that, that takes wonderful film of food and drink and works for all the big package goods companies. Uh, as, as Victor Knapp, who's one of the principals at... Uh, at Media Monk says we, 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 we merged with more robots than we did people. But it's a phenomenal facility. In fact, we used it this earliest week. I was involved in a presentation. We actually did, they, they're, they're absolutely superb technically. And so that was the only thing that we did uh, which, which could be described as an acquisition. Well, well, the point I was leading to is that on the website, it talks about um, like number of countries, number of people, but then it clearly states one unitary yes, structure. Yes, well, and then we, so that's, we, that's think, we think earnouts create fragmentary structure. I mean, and I've been credited wrongly with, with devising earnouts. It probably was Nathaniel Rothschild at the Battle of Waterloo. But it, it, you know, what we're trying to do is to build a unitary company. So everything we've done with the exception of Caramel, everything we've done has been on the basis of half shares, half cash. So people, the entrepreneurs are totally uh, entitled to capitalise on their hard work and and get secure, a little bit more security. Uh, but the other half of the consideration is stock, uh, where there are lockups, and we're, we're in it together. And so it is genuinely... I was talking to somebody at... Um, 
at Densu, who'd worked at Densu earlier this week. And uh, she said, you know, they talk about unitary and they talk about one PL and it's complete nonsense because everybody is just focused on their individual piece. And that is the that is the problem with the holding companies that that and particularly when you do earnouts, I mean people are just focused on their little piece of it, running it autonomously and to the to the detriment of the whole. And I know that, you know, at WPP horizontality, which was a terrible word and which I was partly, if not wholly, responsible for. I know that that's been banned as a, as a part of the vocabulary, but that does get to the heart of the matter because every one of the companies, including WPP, are trying to get people to think as one firm. The problem is the execution uh, can be too fast, which I believe publicists are doing too quickly. They're destroying more value than they create. They destroy Saatchi, Burnett, and BBH. They, they maintain publicists. They maintain Sapient and they destroy LBI and Digitas and Rosetta and Razorfish. Now, do I think, you know, the power of one is a bad concept? No, I think it's the right concept. Do I think being one firm is the wrong concept? No, it's the right concept. But when when you have these traditional assets and when you stick Wonderman in front of Thompson, you destroy Thompson. When you stick... uh, you know, VML in front of YNR, you destroy YNR. And, and arguably, Thompson and YNR, although they may have analog connotations, are the stronger brands. So the, the, I'm not saying that it's, these decisions are easy. They're very difficult. And it's very easy to sit on the sidelines and criticize. But, you know, Omnicom, I saw somebody from an Omnicom agency just recently, and he said it's a ticking time bomb. His exact words were ticking time bombs. It's just waiting to explode because they're, they're not doing as much strategically uh, as he thought and many people inside the company feel they need to do. Now, the irony of that is Omnicom does better. Their, their execution is brilliant. They have great agencies, maybe agencies that are more analog than digital, but they do have great agencies, and they execute well. IPG executes well, um, as well, you know, the fastest growing in the in the last quarter of the holding company is growing at three percent. And what people say is, I, I think with IPG, I think Omnicom and IPG's advantage is they're based in America. Their CEOs sit in America, uh, one in New York, one in Palm Beach, and um, they sit there and they're you know, in the what is unarguably the most important market still in the world at twenty-two trillion or whatever it is out of seventy-five trillion. The Chinese are coming up fast at about 14 trillion. I think it was the last IMF estimate of the Chinese GDP. But, uh, you know, on a per capita basis, uh, uh, America soars ahead. So they sit in America. The CEOs of WPP and and publicists sit in, in London and Paris. And whilst one can argue from a time zone point of view that may be a, a good place to run a global business, I don't think from a client point of view... Uh, it is, and uh, you know, when I, when I was uh, trying to run WPP, you know, if you if you travelled, if if you spent a day or two days travelling from New York to Boston, to Detroit, to Chicago, and Washington DC, you could cover, in theory, about two thirds of WPP's clientele. So the heart of the business, whether we in, in Britain like mm. it or not, is still America, and. Um, you know, China coming up rapidly, Japan important, Germany important, all these other markets very important. But essentially, uh, America, and with President Trump, you know, he's good for business. Whatever people say about him, he's good mm. for business. You know, he reduces tax, he reduces regulation, spends money on infrastructure. So America is going to become disproportionately more important. Have you missed him? 
Uh, yeah, I, I, some time ago, but I did, yeah. And what was he like? Just as he a, was fine. Yeah. He was fine. He was at a wedding. <laughs> so, <but> just, just, <laughs> he was happy. It was. <laughs> but just on, on that point then, in terms of, you know, talking about all those different other uh, groups, how much of your time do you spend looking at what they're doing compared to what, focusing on all these other groups that you were just well, you know, there we, with, we, we, with the direct competition that we have, I mean, I suppose the, the direct competition is Fimilac, the French company, which acquired Jellyfish. So that's the nearest direct competitor. You then go beyond that to the holding companies who claim they do what we do. We would say they don't, but they would claim they do. And then you have the the accounting, the the ex-accounting companies, the you know the Accentures and and Deloitte Digitals, um, which are a big. You know, Accenture is a huge company; it's 125 billion market cap. Last time I've looked, 45 billion of revenue. Um, interestingly, Group M on its own is bigger than Accenture, which is quite an interesting point because its billings are 50 billion. But um, you know, it's they're big companies and they have they're big beasts to feed and very difficult I think to to win they have to win big projects and not the sort of projects we're interested in so we do compete against Accenture and Deloitte uh you know in the moment we're we're head to head with Accenture on a couple of things um one of our presentations uh in uh, Latin America uh so one of the sales meetings we had uh, as Circus got got together with Media Monks was great slide saying Accenture uh, you know uh, Media Monks 4 Accenture nil. Uh, there apparently have been four presentations which which our, our, our lads and lasses claim, claim to have beaten Accenture. So I'm and sure we can, Accenture, Accenture, we can Accenture. include that in this podcast, can we? <laughs> well, you know, if there's anybody out there from Accenture who wants to wants to argue with us on that, we'll, we'll see. Um, but no, I, I, look, those that's the competition. But it really, in terms of head to head, it's more um, it's more around Fimilac, I think, there and Jellyfish. But they're really on the media side of the business. They have a content operation, but you know we're more and more content than programmatic. We're about running a 70% content now and 30% programmatic. We're running 70% the Americas, North and South America, 20% Western Europe and 10% Asia. I wanted to get that to 40, 20, 40. Uh, and the content side, you know, we'll probably try and bring the media side up. We're looking at something at the moment which will increase the media proportion probably to around about 40. 35, 40. So, so I want to balance the group a little bit more uh, to programmatic and data and analytics, and I want to balance the group a little bit more to uh, Asia-Pacific. I worry about Western Europe. I mean, Western Europe is a proportion of worldwide GDP has shrunk over the last few years, and I think we'll continue to do so. So uh, we'll have to see. One of, one of the things, Martin, um, just looking back yeah. over um, how you communicate around yeah. S4, um, you're very, you know, succinct and, and, you know, you have a number of sort Last of statements. Thing, no, that you, nobody's ever said well, I was succinct. You, you, there's kind I was of like, say, we've been talking for 20 minutes. We've only done two questions. The, a lot of the coverage around what you've been saying, there's, there's a lot of repetition around sort of very simple, clear um, descriptions of what you're trying to do in terms of a unitary structure, faster, better, cheaper, digital only, and... It's something that comes through very clearly in terms of, and I just wondered, do you put a lot of thought into that, or you know, in terms of like making sure that you're being really clear and consistent about what you're talking about? Well, I, I don't know whether you put a lot of thought into it or not. I mean, we, we, we when we started, 
have put a lot of thought into what the strategy should be, you know, mm. purely digital, because that's where the growth is. Uh, that holy trinity model of first-party mm. data driving content and uh, programmatic, uh, faster, better, cheaper, what, what our, mm. our new colleagues, uh, Juan and Lania Zambrano at uh, Firewood call uh, speed, uh, quality and value. You know, speed plus quality equals value. And you can have all three. You know, a lot of people say you have to two or three, and I agree with them. You can mm -hmm. have all three. It's a slightly more elegant way of putting it. And the fourth principle, unitary structure, not a fragmented structure. But, you know, we thought clearly about that. We, we've, we've tried to... Sim I mean, I think the answer to your question is try and simplify it. You know, there's the two-second ads that, that Media Monk's created for L'Oreal in Italy uh, on the back of the insight from Facebook that women spend 1.7 seconds on average looking at a, at a post and created uh, a two-second ad uh, around... Uh, um, uh, for celebrities, uh, not not celebrities, non-celebrity influencers uh, with different skin tones, mm. different hair colours, and created two-second ads. I mean, the, the normal reaction yeah. of an agency would be able to create a 15, 30-second mm. or 60-second uh, TV two ad. Two seconds, yeah. So, so two-second ads. And, and, you know, if you think that's wrong, if you think about the Brexit campaign, you know, you know take back mm. control, um, you know, concentrating on Brexit... The, these are the best examples of two-second campaigns, and yeah. two-second two ads work. You know, these are very simple messages yeah. that resonate in a world which is 24-7. And mm. our model of Holy Trinity is an iterative model. It's not a tempole model where big ideas, again, don't get me wrong, or you know, people think, misinterpret this. This is not that creative or big ideas is not important. They are essential. They are central. Mm. But it's the way you execute them. And, you know, tentpole campaigns may not be. I mean, when it looks at the Super Bowl ads and you look at the Oscar ads and you look at the World Cup ads and you look at the Olympic ads, an awful lot of time and effort and energy and creative talent goes into it. And some of it may not be uh, worth, yeah. worth the effort that was put into it. Yeah. And it may be more about aggrandizement rather than it being effective, uh, either in brand building uh, or in activation. So yeah. I think you have to think carefully about yeah. it. And I, I think it's coming from your your past role where you were representing, you know, one of the largest, most established... The, um, la the largest. La the largest. Not anymore. <laughs> num number two to Omnicom. And, Omnicom, and now you're kind Omnicom of, has a higher market capitalization. Right. Than and now you're kind of playing this role of, like, disruptor. Have, have you found playing the role? Well, you are we, a disruptor. We are. We okay. are. Uh, yeah, I, I would say yes. we're more disruptive than dr disrupted. Although at some point in time we'll become disrupted yeah. too. I mean, I'm guessing that's kind of fun. Um, but putting that to one side, have you had to ad adapt your approach as the kind of like the, the figurehead communicating around what you're doing? Do you do you have a different style to before? I'm not conscious of of, of sort of adapting the style. I mean, I, I think that's probably. I mean, it, it might be it might be so, but I haven't thought about it that mm. way. I mean, we focus clearly on different things. I think the you know I've had three sort of iterations: Saatchi, WPP, and S4. Saatchi was, was about globalization purely. WPP was about continuation of globalization and the you know the foothills of technological development. And S4 is pure about purely about technology, and that may demand different different styles. 
Um, but I'm not conscious of it. Mm. Uh, so all, all I'm conscious of it is trying to explain simply, which is what we tried to do at mm. um, WPP. I mean, WPP gets indicted frequently, um, and that may be because of the new management wishes to try and justify its own strategy um, or what, whatever strategy there is there by, so, by saying it became overcomplicated. And, you know, what is it? It's... It's your simplicity probably is the hobgoblin of small minds, and you can't, there aren't neat solutions in our business. It is inherently messy. Uh, you know, good people are inherently difficult to manage or bring mm. together. I mean, average people. I used to say this all the time, and it used to get me into trouble because when you say that you know good people are difficult to manage and average people are easy to manage, I mean, average people become difficult in order to prove that they're good yeah. or to try and prove that they're good. So it defeats the purpose. But, you know, I do believe that. Mm. And I, I don't think there are... You know, for example, I'll give you a very good example. WPP sold its interest in Globand, which is right in the sweet spot of what WPP is trying to do. And for example, mm. yesterday... I mean, I'm interested because I'm still a shareholder in WPP. And, uh, you know, they bought this uh, Floridian e-commerce, Amazon mm. company agency, Wonderman Thompson. So they, they buy that and they sell 20% of Globand. Uh, the, the loss in value on that 20% stake in Globand, I was doing the calculation a couple of days ago because they sold at 52 and Globand is now about 125. It's $500 million. So half a billion dollars of value has been lost. And as a shareholder, I find that I'm sure the chairman of uh, yeah. WPP doesn't even know that, yeah. that he'd lost 500, 500 billion on it. But I would urge him to go and calculate it. And that was because somebody somewhere said, let's just get rid of it without thinking through quite what they were getting rid of. Yeah. Now, there may have been, it may well have been a good idea to sell mm. 60% of Kantar, but to sell 20% of Globant, which is right in the sweet spot of what. WPP is trying to do was just a patent nonsense. Mm. I described it as criminally negligent, and I say again on this podcast, it, was, <laughs> it is now doubly criminally negligent. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's because of the... I was talking to somebody last night about it. Why did they make that decision? And it was because they made a blanket decision. And decisions are never like that. You mm. can't make blanket decisions, particularly no. in our business, because it's yeah. inherently a messy business because it involves people. Yeah, you know, it, our business is about people, and it's about motivating and incentivizing and um, managing people. The good people being difficult to mm -hmm. manage, the average people probably being easier to manage. Don't people yeah. like that? So, so forgive the rant. But I think that, that's an important point. That's interesting. Yeah. But how does that conflict work then, in terms of if you're a shareholder, still a shareholder at WPP, but you're I'm I'm by nature a collector. So, so <laughs> I, rem I remember pitching. I remember Norton Simon, who was a if there's anybody listening to this podcast, <laughs> they won't know who Norton Simon was, but he built a, a big food company. He was a big art collector, rather like Charlie Saatchi. And Norton Simon said, you know, collecting is a disease. You know, you never, you never know when to, to sell. So, so I'm diseased. Um, how important is PR to build S4 Capital, bearing in mind, because obviously you're at events and, and you're talking about S4 Capital, um, you know, regularly, but how does that 
where does the importance lie with that and then the um, ensuring that you've got your companies like Media Monks, et cetera, getting their share of voice as well? Well, we, they do. They do a very good job. I mean, just uh, today I saw the, an email that, you know, they've, they've, uh, Media Monks have boosted significantly their communications uh, staff across across the globe. And that's part of it, you know, because Media Monks has gone from, I think when they became part of the, the, the group in or the company in... Uh, in July of 18, there were about 625 people. Today, they're about uh, 1,850. So they've sort of tripled in size within, in, by number of people, within, you know, 18 months, just over 18 months. So, um, you know, that's one of the, the good things. Is when your top line is growing by 45%, and the industry in which you're operating is growing by 20, you, you almost don't have the time to spend the money to catch up. The, the reverse is also true, is that when, you know, publicists in Q4 of last year shrunk by about 5%, that's this digital business and it's analog business. So the analog business probably shrank more than 5%. Do you think that within the agencies, they're cutting their costs or the creative directors or the account... Uh, directors or the planners are cutting their salaries by 5% to take... No, of course not. So you get an imbalance inside the company which is exacerbated by the varying growth rates. And the simple fact of the matter is the why I'm very focused on purely digital uh, is because that's where the growth is mm. and that's where I see the potential. And, you know, I think... You can make the argument we're averagely intelligent. I actually think we're, we're better than average, but let's say we're averagely intelligent. We will do better pushing on an open door. It will be tough. You know, it's Warren Buffett's saying about when good management meets a bad business, the bad business wins. And what, and what about your role as a spokesperson then for, for, the, uh, for the business, bearing in mind... Well, you, you know, Pete, but, uh, but, but, Pete Kim at Mighty Hive, Chris Martin uh, at Mighty Hive, Victor and Wes at Media Monks are... Uh, equally loquacious. But you must be getting called... I mean, obviously, we've grabbed you for an hour today, but you, you must be getting called upon all the time. There's, yeah, there's, there's uh, conferences uh, you're at constantly. Yes. How much does that then impact on, on actually running and building the business as well? Well, you, you have to balance it. It's, it's yeah. difficult, and you have mm. to balance it. But you, you have to... You know, we've created a brand from nothing. We started, you know, literally in this, in this office uh, with one person in... June or July or whatever it was of 2018. Media Monks became part of the business in July of uh, 18 and the Mighty Hive on Christmas Eve of 18. Those were the two first big moves, or, uh, the two pivot points, if you like, that we've, we've built on. Uh, so you have to balance it. It's not easy, but um, you know, I spent about, I would say, it's a bit different to WPP. That was about a third client's third internal, the third external doing stuff like this and the shareholders and things. I would say it's probably skewed a bit more now, maybe 50, 60% with sort of client and client things and maybe of the other 40%, 20 on internal and 20 external. Okay. I'm conscious of time because yeah. obviously we've only got, got you for about another 10 minutes. But go on, sorry, Brandon. I was just going to say in terms of that communication side of things, um, has it something that's always come quite natural to you or have you? was there a point when when you weren't very good at it and you actually had to... No, I'm, not, I'm not conscious of it. And people will say he wasn't very good at it. They'll probably mm. say he wasn't, he isn't very good at it now. So so I'm not conscious of it. You, I, mm. you know, I think if you're looking, you know, you just try and, try and respond in a 
natural, not forced way. We're still battling away over the builders next door. Um, we've just got a few more questions, which we're asking to, to um, yeah. some of which we're asking to all our unicorn leaders. One of which is, what's been the biggest communications challenge you've faced since the launch of S4 Capital? Well, I, th I, I think, you know, we've been establishing a brand. I mean, obviously, Media Monks had a following. Uh, Mighty Hive had a following. I think, you know, if you ask the leaders of those two, two pillars of our business, the content practice and the programmatic practice, they would say... You know, they have far more brand recognition today than they had before. So, you know, we've had to sort of launch a brand, and I think we launched it successfully. I think we have brand trial. The opportunity for us is to get, um, to move from trial to what I would call conversion at scale. You know, we, we call them opportunities, whoppers. <laughs> uh, you know, we have one very large client as a proportion of our 400 million of revenue. And we've got, what we have to do is to to demonstrate that what we can do what, what we're doing at scale. So the the Holy Trinity model, which really is the is part of digital transformation or business transformation, whatever you want to call it, that's the business that we're really in. So so as we we were talking about it last week at our board meeting in New York, um, you know what when we talk about the Holy Trinity model and we talk about first party data driving digital advertising content and programmatic. That really is the activation end of, or activation part, or, or part of the activation of digital transformation. So it's set, it, increasingly, that's where our business is going to be positioned. And, you know, we compete. I went through the competition. Directly, we compete with a business that is smaller than ourselves. Indirectly, we compete with holding companies that are, are bigger and indirectly, we complete with consultancies, which are even mm. bigger than they are. So, so we have to fashion what we do. We, we have to be the uh, the disruptor. We have to be the motor torpedo mm. boat. Um, you know, we have to be the the Israel or the Singapore or the UK now post Brexit, rather than the US or China or Brazil or India. So it's it's a very different. You know, and it's very different, obviously, to to trying to run WPP. And on that point actually you've been quite outspoken about WPP yeah um well, I'm a shareholder I'm entitled to do you do you think that like the you know the 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 loss of value on, mm. on global yeah. but do you think that founders of other companies that are kind of disrupting industries should be more confident in criticizing the competition well I'm not criticizing the competition because they're not direct competition and by nature and scale, they're very different to us. Mm. I mean, their, their, their strategy, if you can, if you can divine it, um, is different. Um, no, listen, I, I, I think perfectly entitled to express a view. Um, you know, I, I express a view on, on succession there, and I don't think the, the structure. You now have, um, well, you have, you have Mark Reed there, you have Andrew Scott, you have John Rogers, I mean, who's just moved mm. in there, you know, who was... Uh, in the in the um, the race to be CEO uh, of Sainsbury, uh, and now he's joined uh, um, WPP. So you have sort of three people who are whose 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 lines of um, activity sort of overlap. Uh, I, I don't know quite how they they they're going to divide it up. But, you know, mm -hmm. Andrew, you know, he's a very talented guy on the who seems to be doing more on the M and A front. Um, Mark is, you know, seems to be more involved with with uh, clients. Mm. 
uh, and John Rogers, you know, so here is a, a, a guy who was going to become a CEO who now has gone back in inverted commas. I mean, I think WPP is a bigger company, um, but has gone back to, to being a CFO. So there's going to be a lot of um, overlapping mm. areas in the executives, in the C-suite. Suite. Yeah. It's, not, it's not clearly de- demarcated. Mm. I think probably there are two jobs there and the three people. So just as an observer, I think that's uh, yeah. an interesting situation. But time will tell. Well, talking of time, nicely. <laughs> uh, we've, got, we've got about five minutes left with you. I've got, and we've got a few more questions. So I just want to just quickly on these. Um, and obviously you were at Davos uh, just recently. You've talked about the need for technology companies to exercise their power responsibly. Do you believe there is a greater onus on tech founders today to act? Yes, I think there is. I mean, you, whether it's issues of climate change, and it's Satya Nardella really took the agenda, I think, at uh, Davos in a way, certainly the public agenda. I think the private agenda was more around what's the relationship between America and China, and you know that's a deteriorating relationship, which I think is critical. Um, you know, as critical as climate change. I'm not saying climate change isn't critical; it is, but the two are really important. They're interlinked because China, given its size, is bound to be the biggest polluter emitter of uh, carbon. So, in a sense, they're linked. But Satcher took the lead by saying, you know, we're going to go for not just uh, zero emissions, we're going to go for negative to t- make up for what we did in the past. Yeah. So you set a very, very high high bar, and I think it's a good example. You know, Google now have gone uh, to, have made it clear they're going to eliminate third-party cookies over the next two years. Uh, we don't quite know how that's going to play out, but there has a lot of serious implications uh, for the industry. So and why did they do that? I think part of it was to do, I don't know, but I guess part of it is to deal with the privacy Issues. It's going to eliminate a number of publishers, so there will be a, a further debate about whether you know the too few publishers. You know, is journalism being being crushed? So that'll be another part of it. Uh, a number of the people who relied on third-party cookies are going to go to the wall. We've seen a, a very significant impact, for example, on the market capitalization of Critio as a result. The Critio always seems to take the the brunt of any any change of that of that nature, or even if it does affect companies like the trade desk and and others. So um, there's a lot of things. So I think, but what you're seeing is the tech companies embrace this. It might be because they're worried about the privacy debate. It may be they're worried about brand safety. It may be they're worried about interference in elections. It's probably to do with the fact that they're worried about regulation. I mean, now in America, the regulator will review even small tech transactions, not even ones that technically it should. So everybody, all the regulators are gunning in Europe uh, and in uh, America on a state-by-state basis and on a federal basis. Uh, They're gunning for the tech companies because, you know, with size comes responsibility. And, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Google are all trillion, Apple are all trillion-dollar companies. Um, You know, there is a bigger company, and that's, uh, that's Aramco. But, um, you know, I think uh, Amazon is now up to 1.3, 1.4 trillion. Um, so these are very big companies. And with that, with that, with power comes responsibility. So I think they're starting to see they have to exercise responsibility. They, I mean, Google and Facebook, and they don't get much credit for this, and I think this is wrong. I think they should be given credit for it. They've hired, I think, Google 10,000 people, Facebook 30,000 plus, I think it's 38,000 people. You've seen it's had impact on their margins. I mean, their costs have gone up as a result and their margins. And they're, they're trying to monitor 
much more the editorial content. You know, are they media companies? Are they tech companies? I happen to think they're media companies. They've always protested that they're tech companies, but I think they're beginning to act like media companies uh, and make the balanced decision. And I think the reason they're doing that is because they've been phenomenally successful. I don't see them, by the way, being eclipsed. The only company I've seen in the last year or so that really has got momentum is uh, ByteDance TikTok. And I'm told ByteDance has $20 billion of ad, ad revenues and TikTok within it is $7 billion. Um, so, so that's the only one that's moved the needle beyond Google, Facebook and Amazon and Tencent Alibaba continuing to march forward. And when they introduced GDPR here, it, it, the intention was to, you know, to, to put a limit on the big boys the big girls, what it's done is given them a stronger position. And I think, you know, uh, Google's decision on third-party cookies will make Google stronger, not going to make Google weaker. We've got time for one last question because we are on a very mm. tight time scale. I'm not sure you're going to have an opinion on this, Martin, because you've so kind don't of... I, don't ask the question. <laughs> well, you've, you've talked a lot about being not particularly conscious of your communications yeah. approach. But one question we've been asking all of the unicorn leaders is if you were to go back in time and give your old self some advice on how they could do a better job in communicating, what advice would you give? No, I, just, I listen, I, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, I don't, this is not good for you. Uh, I, don't <laughs> think, I, don't, I don't think surrounding yourself with advisors mm. is necessarily the best thing. Mm. I, I think you, t you tend to, you know, when you, you take advice, you, the advice tends to be err on the side of caution uh, and not saying and not opining, keep your head down. Don't put your head over the parapet. And, you know, if, it's very simple. If, you, if, if somebody's going to write something negative, um, and let's say it's going to be a minus 10, if you speak to the person before they write it, you probably can make it a minus 9 or a minus 8 or a minus 7. You might not be able to make it a 0 or a plus 10. Uh, but, you know, if you don't speak, you don't. So, so I think, you know, hiding, um, you know, the, the classic response, you know, on a Friday afternoon, where well, it used to be the case, you know, you had Friday afternoon deadline and... The, the reporter would ring you up and, and, and the PA would say, you know, he's in a meeting yeah. or he's travelling or, you know, whereas mm, he's hiding under the mm. desk. I, I don't think that works. No. Um, so I think you just have to be responsive and uh, some people disagree with that. And, you you know, that much overused word authentic, just, yeah. just, just say, say what you feel. No, I think that's great advice because otherwise I think you... You need personality. That doesn't mean they? advisors are not valuable. They no. are. They are. Yeah. But, but it means that you tend. It tends to hem you in and tends to um, make you over cautious. Yeah. Um, so I, that would be for what it's worth. That would I be. think that's great. So advice. anybody on this yeah. podcast that's listening, and just to yeah. prove, I'm just trying to find out. <laughs> You're going to be to bombarded prove, tomorrow. Martin at <laughs> Martin, Martin at s4capital.com. All those people are listening. Just send me a one-line email. You're testing us out. And I will um, tell Russell <laughs> and tell our sponsor. We'll find out exactly because, you know, these are um, blind podcasts. That's right. Well, um, so Martin, despite uh, the builders um, drilling away next door, thank you so despite much. Despite the interruptions. Yes, thank you so much for Pleasure. inviting us to your office. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very good, much. And good luck. Good luck. Thank you. So, Brendan, that's uh, unicorn number two in the can. Initial thoughts off the back of that chat? I mean, it was it was fantastic. And I just think there's just so much great wisdom in what Sir Martin was saying. I was particularly liked his answer to the last question because I think that 
ultimately as a leader, you need to have a very strong personality and identity that comes through your communications. And yes, advisors can help along the way, but unless you have a very clear idea about how you want to present yourself to the outside world, then it's going to feel soulless. So I, yeah, I thought that was a really yeah. great point. What, what about right at the start, we were talking about the positioning of a unicorn, obviously given mm. this is what the series. Yeah. I think when you're, when you're growing a, a business and you're trying to stand out from the crowd, you're always trying to find points that you can use to kind of add credibility to your success. And in that sense, I think the um, unicorn moniker is really helpful and kind of just is a great indicator that everyone understands that you're a serious business and you're going places. Yeah. And so just as a reminder, um, obviously we're, we're two down, eight to go now. Um, what's your plan for the series and, and what are you hoping to do with all the content as well? Afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, that th this series was inspired by just personal experience of kind of working with lots of um, CEOs and founders of technology companies and just um, sort of experiencing a, a sense of being maybe slightly uncertain around how they should be approaching issues to do with communications. And so we really thought that, you know, that we wanted to kind of do something to help people that were sort of thinking about the challenges around communications, knowing how important it is to their, you know, their growth and their success. And therefore, we wanted to work with you to get a group of people that we think are, you know, have um, sort of valuable lessons to share and then to try and capture that. Yeah. Well, he, he, Samartian certainly wasn't uh, shy in coming forward with some of his advice and tips. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Well, um, that is actually it for the second uh, episode in this uh, special series. So if you want to find out more about S4 Capital, their website is simply s4capital.com. Um, of course, if you are a unicorn leader listening to this series and feel we should be interviewing you, uh, please do get your people to speak to our people and uh, we'll try and make it happen. Um, in the meantime, we'd love to hear any comments you have on today's chat, which you can do on our Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter feeds. And those are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of spotify or itunes and if you've liked what you've heard uh, please do give us a positive rating and review uh, we're also on all your favorite podcast apps so just search for the c-suite podcast and hit subscribe uh, just a reminder you can also subscribe to the without borders podcast from our partners at taito and all the details uh, for that are on their website just head to taitopr.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the nav bar um, if you'd like to get in touch with this show you can do that via our contact form at csuitepodcast.com or you can reach me via twitter using at ross goldsmith or find me on linkedin but for now thanks for listening and goodbye mm -hmm.